Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar, a serial novel by Chris Thompson, narrated by Chris Thompson. Chapter 8. Blue Light Over Bethnal Green. I want to go home. When I heard these words, it took me a few moments to notice that it was me who spoke them. I want to go home. This time, I said it consciously, with emphasis. The home I was picturing was Roberts and my apartment in London. It had, in many ways, been my first secure base, and losing that space was inextricably entwined with losing Robert. One day, not long after Robert and I moved in together, we bought a blue fluorescent light for the apartment. We spent a glorious hour deciding where it should go, excitedly testing out different locations and watching the neon blue illuminate the nooks and crannies of our home. The blue drained the colour from our skins, and, quite literally, we saw each other in a new light. Our cohabitation marked the first time I felt truly settled in our relationship. Robert worked away a great deal, but now we were living together, things felt calmer, and I learned over time that Robert always came home, guided back by the constant neon blue beacon that shone out of our living room window. Out of our ten years together, Seven of them might be thought of as our golden age, where I'd meet him in whichever city he'd find himself, or plan my annual leave around his international work trips, which he would generously share with me. We saw the world together. Back then, Robert worked in theatre, and I was a social worker. However, I wished it were the other way round, and lived vicariously through Robert. The first play I ever saw as a child was Peter Pan, and that night, I lay awake, breathless, replaying the magic in my mind. To this day, when I take my seat in a theatre and the house lights dim, my heart beats faster. I'd stand outside the historic West End theatres in London and memorise the names of the writers, the directors, designers. They were an elite group and I venerated them accordingly, mythologised them almost, and the idea of me even thinking I wanted that life, even for a second, was a calumny. When I graduated and became a social worker, people were shocked. I was the theatre kid. It was assumed I'd be on the stage. But it never crossed my mind to try. People like me didn't do that sort of thing. And social work suited me. Focusing on other people's problems is a good way to hide from one's own. But it was stressful. For starters, in social work, you see men at their absolute worst. I remember crying in the toilets because I was too scared to go on a visit. The father of the child I was responsible for had frightened me so much, to my core in fact. One visit, he locked me in the kitchen and sent his vicious dog in. Another time, he followed me to the train station. I was convinced he was going to kill me. And there were a hundred men like that on my caseload, or so it seemed. Eventually, it got too stressful. So, I invented a child who had been fostered in another city and took to booking out whole afternoons to visit them. What I'd actually do was head up to the half-price ticket booth in Leicester Square and see a matinee. There was something about the darkness, the anonymity of the crowd, that I believed it was the only place I was safe. When my boss found out, she was furious, but then asked to come with me. So we formed a secret monthly theatre club. No one ever knew that whilst we were supposedly visiting a child in Bournemouth, who we even gave a name, We were actually shimmying past a row of fellow audience members and sitting down to watch a disfigured creative genius torment his milk-toast muse, or a Danish prince go crazy with revenge. One time, we got cocky and even went to the national dog show, Crufts. 
we raced home to see ourselves on the TV, dressed in hats, sunglasses and declared our disguises best in show. Robert loved that I was a social worker and that my work had nothing to do with theatre. It made me a unicorn on press nights and over time his creative colleagues would make a beeline for me so they didn't have to talk about the play we'd just endured. You do a real job, they would say. That must be so rewarding. Not like this silly theatre thing. But this theatre wasn't silly to me. It was everything I wanted to do, to be, but didn't have the courage to try. Robert was my window into this strange, special world. The pigeons were gorging on my quarter pounder. I looked at my phone and scrolled through Robert's and my chats on WhatsApp. I wanted to remember what our first message was. Knowing Robert, it would have been lovely. A warm hug of a message letting me know he'd made a vegetarian curry or telling me what time he'd be home. Every message he ever sent me, and even still to this day, for the most part, ends with an XX kiss. According to WhatsApp, Robert was online an hour ago. He'd probably gone to bed late after a show, read for a bit, then set his alarm for 8am. As I scrolled back to our first message, the status changed. Robert was online. I felt a twinge in my chest. I wondered if he was scrolling through our chat too, and could see I was there. I imagined him with his phone in his hand, in the apartment, in our home, lit by the blue light. Even though I knew he'd be in bed, all the same, in my mind, we sat there, together but separate, tacitly connected by this one unremarkable word. Online. The status updated. Last online, 8.32pm. Robert was gone. There you are. I've been looking all over. It was Daniel. I thought you might want these. He handed me a pair of jogging bottoms and some clean underwear. I only live a couple of blocks away, he said. Thanking him profusely, I changed behind a tree. I figured you'd left, I said. I thought about it, but that's not who I am. We walked through the park and I told Daniel about my email. I don't know anything about your world and I hardly know you. But I can tell you right away, you are a big person. And I get the impression that your industry is keeping you very small. I'd never thought of it that way, but it was true. I was being kept small. If theatre were my romantic partner, you'd call it an abusive relationship. All my years of social work, supporting women to leave bad relationships, or encouraging friends to leave men who were parsimonious with their love, and yet, Whilst not exactly the same, here was I, cap in hand, tiny Tim at the window, begging for scraps, asking for the love of someone who did not want to love me. It was, and is, nothing short of humiliating. Today's life lesson, I said, you can't make someone love you, and you can't make someone put on your play. Daniel thought for a moment. You work your ass off, then you die, and no one gives a shit. That's life. That's life. I said. We have someone in common, you know. A guy called Lionel. Did you know him well? Did I know him? Is he dead? He's not dead, but he doesn't live here anymore. Where is he? Daniel scuffed his heel on the ground. I met him online and we're friends, but I, I did help him out with some health stuff through my work. And I know him more that way now. Well, can you tell me if he's okay? He's okay. How well did you know him? If my knowledge of him was proportionate to my love for him, then I knew him intimately, overwhelmingly. But in truth, my knowledge of Lionel was fleeting. He was a bright flare, livid, 
but evanescent. And now he was gone, all I had left of him was his blotchy afterimage seared onto my retina. Not well, I replied. We stopped walking and leant against a wooden wall that hid a construction site. There were posters of upcoming shows plastered across them. It turns out that Daniel and Lionel had met a year ago, and when Daniel was doing his due diligence online stalk of me, or his DDoS, as he called it, he saw that we had Lionel in common. Well, he's doing fine, but I shouldn't say more than that. Being next to someone who had the information I'd been hunting for so incessantly was aggravating. But even amidst my deranged obsession with finding out where he was and why he left me, I knew I would regret doing anything that violated Lionel's privacy. He was doing what he needed to do, it was painful and I hated it, and that was that. And maybe I'd end up with Daniel. I could see myself on his arm at a medical conference or entertaining the neighbours on our porch, which was something all Southerners had I'd gleaned from a lifetime of reading Tennessee Williams. The future of British theatre has landed, Daniel said. Thanks, that's really kind of you. No, that's what it says here. The future of British theatre has landed. Daniel was looking at a poster. He read it again. The future of British theatre has landed, and it is unrivaled. No one will ever come close. The New York Times. My nemesis playwright. I couldn't breathe. Are you okay? Daniel asked. Now I was hyperventilating. I took my spunk-stained trousers in both hands, looked at Daniel, and then started to whip the poster over and over. You want this? You fucking want this? I screamed as I flogged the poster mercilessly. Unrivaled? Unfucking rivaled? You want a piece of me? Daniel's mouth was agape with incredulity. He pulled me away from the poster, but I wriggled free and gave it another round of my fury. This is my town! This is my fucking town! I'd like to say I got a hold of myself. But in fact, I just wore myself out. If I hadn't been so exhausted and weak from hunger, I'd have gone at it all night. But I had nothing left to give. Daniel walked me to the subway. He suggested we steer our ships towards friendship, which I thought was an elegant and classy way of escaping my lunacy, and I committed it to memory to use on other men. It turns out he knew Mike too, although not his scruff alter ego, and we agreed to get together sometime. I suggested we three go cruising together, but Daniel scrunched up his face and looked at me, no longer with pity, which had been his mode hitherto, but with a faint judgmental sneer. Thank you for being so nice to me, Daniel. You didn't see me at my best, Daniel cackled. I think maybe I did. At home, I went online and booked two tickets for the premiere of my nemesis's play. It was called In and the One ticket for me and one ticket for Marty. If I could disguise myself at a nationally televised dog show, I could disguise myself at a New York premiere. Who was I kidding? I could streak naked across the stage at curtain call and no one would notice. I read the play's synopsis and challenged myself to think one positive thought about it. I failed. It looked like a load of old bollocks. My thoughts returned to Robert, alone at home, the fluorescent blue light still signalling hopefully into the night sky. An idea, previously unthinkable, landed on me softly like a moth. Maybe this light is guiding me back home. I typed Robert a message. 
Dear Robert, I wondered if we could find some time to speak. I don't know really what I want to say, and I understand if you'd rather not, but if you'd consider it, I'd be grateful. His status flicked to online. The ticks went blue, and then he called me. I'd not heard his voice for months. It had its familiar, peaceful timbre. Tears instantly began to stream from my eyes. I'm worried you might think I'm living it up and having the time of my life, but the truth is, I'm not okay, it's terrible here. Just come home, he said. The heart of the house has gone without you. This winded me. He said, I'm not ready to say goodbye, and I don't think you are either. I got your letter. My letter? Yeah. It was written on that rather strange paper. What was that, parchment? Harvey must have mailed that letter after all. I didn't reply because I wasn't sure what to make of it, Robert said. Saying you taught me to love again was a bit of a reach. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Everyone misses you, he said. Robert, it's so strange not talking to you, not having you in my life. I still can't believe this has happened. There was a beep on the line. I looked at my phone and saw it was an incoming call. From Lionel. I jolted upwards. My whole body started to shake and a wave of nausea hit me. Are you still there? Robert asked. I'm still here. I was totally dumbfounded. Should I answer? Should I leave it? Lionel's call stopped after two rings. I waited for a voicemail. But none came. Thought I'd lost you there for a minute, Robert said. No, I'm still here. You're up late, Robert. What time is it in London? He went quiet for a moment. Robert? He took a deep breath. I'm not in London. I'm in New York. Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar is written and narrated by Chris Thompson, directed by Andrew Falaise, edited and post-production by Christopher Huth.